Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Hendricks Center here at DTS. And today, we are going to be discussing, drum roll please, predestination and free will. Here we go. Uh, We are joined by Paul Smalley, who is the teaching assistant of Dr. Joel Beakey, and also co-author of Reformed Systematic Theology, which is a hefty systematic theology. So you, anybody listening should be impressed. And we're also joined by Dr. Tim Yoder, who is the uh, professor, a professor of theological studies here at Dallas Mm -hmm. Theological Seminary. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. That's great. So... I was sort of joking in a cartoon manner when I said, whew, here we go, um, as far as talking about predestination and free will, but sort of not, Mm. in that um, I, a little bit about myself, uh, my love of theology actually began with this very conversation. Uh, Mm. We, I was in a college Bible study, and we were, I don't know, why, but the the Bible study leaders decided that we were going to talk about predestination and free will that evening with a bunch of college students who had never really been introduced to the concept. And, and it was, I was at, that was actually from an Arminian perspective. Those were the people that I was under at that point. And, um, that evening, I, I still remember, I mean, it's been almost 20 years and I still remember (laughs) that evening because everybody got so upset. Mm. Um, and as, especially when double predestination and all of that kind of came around, people started like women started crying and being, and, and I will never forget somebody saying, that's not my God. That is not my God just over and over. And the, one of the other people kind of pointed their finger in their, her face and said, who are you to say who God is? Wow. And yeah. And at that moment, I was sitting there, not really all that emotionally invested but in the conversation, but, but I was like, oh, huh, there might be things about God that, I'm, that I don't know. That's interesting. And so I ended up studying theology for many, many years to come <laughs> because I wanted to learn more about God. So this is, a, this is a near and dear conversation to my heart because of that. But I also tell that story just to highlight the fact that it can be a very highly charged conversation Absolutely. that it seems like I maybe more than any other or definitely one of the top five theological conversations, whether you're talking people who are professional scholars or lay theologians, anybody along the spectrum just seem to have very strong feelings at times. Um, And so I wanted to know from you gentlemen, how did you end up (laughs) thinking about this area and why do you think it can be so highly charged? So let's start with you, Paul. How did you end up thinking around these things and what are your thoughts as to why people feel so strongly about it? Well, for me, it it really began right around the time I was converted, actually, which I was a freshman in college and was going to a Sunday school class in uh, the church there at college I was attending, and the class was on the book of Ephesians. And so there you go. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right there in chapter one. 
So that was really the beginning of seeing that predestination is not just some philosophical debate that um, people have in academic settings, it's in the Bible. And so we have to deal with it. We have to look at what does God actually say about this in his word. And then when God converted me, um, I think shortly after I started attending that class, uh, just reading the scriptures, because he gave me such a love for the scriptures, which was quite new for me. Um, as I read through the scriptures, I saw over and over and over again um, the, the greatness and the goodness of God. And so that theme of God's sovereignty connected with his goodness and his kindness and love is just constantly present, not as an either or, but as a both and. Hmm. Um, and so I just found it in the scriptures all over the place. Of course, there were other influences that came after that, but that's really how it started for me. Okay. And do you have any thoughts as to why people feel so strongly on either side of this? Sometimes it has to do with caricatures that are made. Hmm. Um, so people have ideas in their minds like, oh, well, if, if you believe in God's sovereignty, then you just made us all robots, for example, um, which is not what a well-informed Reformed theologian would say. Um, or uh, if you if you don't believe in double predestination, then you don't believe that God's in control at all, which, I mean, somebody like John Wesley would say, no, I believe in the providence of God in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of it has to do with caricatures, um, false pictures that are presented. Um, part of it may have to do with uh, the way that we kind of divide up into parties or groups and just shoot at each other. Mm -hmm. Um but I think part of it, honestly, has to do with the fact that the glory of God is at stake in this debate. Um, and wherever we land on this, it makes a difference in how we view God, um, how we pray, um, and all that sort of thing. And the glory of God is, I mean, that's what makes all things have value. It's His glory in them. Hmm. So it is an important issue. Fascinating. All right. What about you, Dr. Yoder? Well, um, I think one of my first memories of uh, these sorts of conversations took place my first year in seminary. I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and uh, I had a buddy, and, uh, and we were eating, we were regular lunch companions and uh, talking over all the theological things that we were learning. And, um, and he was uh, <clears throat> much more Arminian than I was at the time. And, uh, and he was very upset by the sorts of things that, you know, mm -hmm. the idea of double predestination and, and, uh, and election and, and did people have freedom? And, um, <clears throat> and he was a lot, he was a lot more, um, well-grounded in many of the issues than I was. And, uh, and, but we, we would talk and, and discuss these things and came up with all kinds of bizarre ways to try to think about these issues. And, uh, and then I went on from, uh, after seminary, I went to, uh, to get my PhD at Marquette um, in philosophy. And in studying philosophy, um, I came across, I, was, I remember being very, very shocked and surprised to discover that the exact same problem that we have in theology between God's sovereignty and human free will is takes place in, in philosophy between mm -hmm. determinism and, and and freedom and some of the terms are different and and some of the and there's perspectives are 
are uh, the answers and things are, are a little different, but it's the same problem. And, and I was uh, blown away by that, realizing that this isn't just a uh, kind of in-house theological debate between Calvinists or Arminians or Arminians, um, but it's it's a it's a big it's a it's a uh, a human problem between you know over the over the degree to which we are free and how much um, and how much we are determined by the various factors, whether it's our environment or scientific things or psychological things or 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 a deity and uh, and so the same problem and uh, the more I wrestled with these things I think I I evolved in this way and that way uh, in terms of thinking about these things and have continued to be fascinated by the question and the import you know the importance both of God and his sovereignty and also the challenge of of what it means to think of ourselves as as having some measure of freedom and how important that is in uh in understanding our place in this world, um, and also the revelation of God's word. So, mm-hmm. why do you think it's so highly charged? I think um, it gets highly charged because, because, frankly, eternal things are at stake, heaven and hell, hmm. and um, and 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 also because I think that the natural um, inclination that we have as humans is to think of ourselves as being in control, as having freedom, maybe even autonomy, right? That we have the ability to choose, um, and then to to understand that there are there is something out there, if we can put it that way. That you know, whether it's again, whether it's a, a determining factor in our genetics or in our uh, in our culture, or uh, or even a, you know, a divine agent that is uh, electing, predestining. Then, then that then that that shifts the ground in um, in difficult ways, and it, it it's 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 hard to grapple with. With, and I think that's why there is um, there is this frequently very charged nature to these kind of conversations. Hmm. So I want to dig into something uh, both of you actually introduced a little bit, and I think it would be helpful here at the beginning uh, before we hop into what we're actually talking about when we mean all these different opinions. Don't worry if you're listening, we're going to get there. Uh, but Paul, you mentioned it affects your prayer. And um, Dr. Yoder, you, men- you mentioned that it affects, you know, like how you read scripture and mm. how you interpret because they're, it involves a hermeneutic. There are hermeneutical decisions that are a part of mm-hmm. um, that will that will happen if you have this commitment. And so, what other things? So, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, I think if somebody's listening and thinking, "Yeah, this is kind of like how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin" kind of mm-hmm. conversation, whether you think that's an important conversation or not, um, and. And saying like, no, this actually really does impact how you go about your faith. And and so I'd like both of you maybe to speak to that a little bit more. And Dr. Yoder, maybe we can start with you sure. with, of like, what else does it impact on like a regular day-to-day person's walk with the Lord? Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is, is really the, is the philosophical concern here, and that is that how we understand the presence or the absence of, of freedom in our in our human situation has a huge impact on on ethics um, and and uh, um, and whether we are responsible and and uh, and culpable for the things that we do. 
So, and um, and again, I think as uh, as Paul mentioned earlier, there are lots of, of uh, caricatures in, in in these sorts of things. But some people think, well, if if the, if if I'm determined or if I'm predestined, then then I'm not responsible. Then things, you know, then then I might have you know stolen the candy from the store, or I might have you know cheated on this exam. But it's not really up to me, right? And and so and so it's you know, but. The more we poke at that issue, I think that that is a really important concern. Um, when we think about about um, ethics and how we behave, uh, we are we are responsible for the things that we do, uh, to be praised if we've done something right, or to be punished for the things that we've done wrong. Uh, and uh, and so the 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 place of of my human individual responsibility in these things is really important. What, what am I uh, responsible for? Uh, what, is, what is truly up to me? Um, and, uh, and, if, if, um, and if I'm to be judged or even punished, um, am I being judged or punished for the things that I've done or, or for something that is outside of my control? So that's, that's, a, big, that's a big part of this. Well, I, that's helpful. And even taking it a step further... It also is what are other people culpable for, right. <laughs> you know, and what what where does a sense of responsibility lie for them? Because then that starts to impact. Well, how do I forgive, mm-hmm. and and how do I interact with somebody else when they have done something wrong to me specifically, or to in my perception to society? How am how am I related to them? Yeah, responsibility. Paul, what are your thoughts? How else? You already introduced prayer. You can definitely dig into that if you'd like a little bit. And how else do you see it impacting a day-to-day Christian walk? Well, let me start by just uh, interacting with a couple of things that you and Dr. Yoder have said. Um, So one, one way that it impacts us is if we, if we take God's sovereignty and human responsibility and turn them into an either-or proposition, so we have to choose between one or the other, um, that's going to affect the way that we read the Bible. Mm -hmm. And we won't be able to see and appreciate the way that the Bible often brings things together that we don't know how they fit together. But in the incomprehensibility of God, His infinite glory— um, we're just to believe both. There are a lot of examples of that. You think about Christ being both God and man um, was is one example. Or, for example, it says in Luke 22, verse 22, this is our Lord Jesus speaking, Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So here we have in one verse... On the one hand, Jesus is saying, everything that's happening to me was predetermined. Everything is the plan of God. Um, Scriptures are being fulfilled. And yet, in the same breath, he says, Judas, the man who betrayed me, is responsible for his actions, and he will be rightly judged for what he has done. Mm -hmm. So, we've got both absolute divine sovereignty there and also true human choice and responsibility. And you say, well, how can that be? And I say, I don't know. But there's a kind of a both-and approach to the Bible when it teaches us about things that we don't, we don't know how they fit together, but we have to believe both of that. And that will have a huge impact on how we read the Bible and whether or not we take parts of the Bible and use them to throw away other parts that don't mm-hmm. make sense to us. 
So that's one part of it. Um, you mentioned the issue of forgiveness. Um, my mind immediately went to uh, Genesis 50 and verse 20, where Joseph, uh, uh, after, mm-hmm. of course, you know, the whole Joseph story, what a remarkable story that is. And um, his father has died and his brothers come to him and now they're scared that, okay, now Joseph's going to get us back for selling him into slavery and basically ruining his life for a long, long time. And Joseph makes that remarkable statement, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So what was it that allowed Joseph to really forgive his brothers when they had, I mean, he spent years in Mm -hmm. slavery and prison. Um, It was, on the one hand, a frank recognition that they were responsible for their actions. They had done evil. But in the same action, mysteriously, God had God was executing his plan. He was carrying out his purpose, and his purpose was good and resulted in many people being saved from starvation because Joseph was there mm-hmm. to uh, gather the food and you know the story. So it being able to bring these things together in a biblical way really helps us to be able to say, you know what, I can forgive you. And part of the reason I can forgive you is it's not because I say, well, you know, you're not responsible for your actions, or it was no big deal. But I can trust that even when you were doing evil to me, God was still working out a good plan. Romans eight twenty eight still true. And so I can let go of this and trust God with it. Hmm. That's a really good add to, <laughs> add to what we were talking about. No, and I, I love that. I love that you're bringing in specifically Joseph, I mean, with regard to forgiveness. I can appreciate that. Did you have any other thoughts you wanted to add? Uh, Sure. uh, Briefly, uh, when I think about, you know, one of the great texts that talks about God choosing us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. What's the point of what Paul's saying? Um, Well, it starts off with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then it says, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. And so, um, having a biblical view of God choosing us is designed not to, okay, now I've got something to argue about. It's now we have something to worship about. Um, Mm. I can't imagine why God would choose me, Um, but that he would choose me and that he would choose me, sinner though I am, to bless me with this unimaginably rich set of blessings in Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's designed by God to evoke from our hearts just this this echo, this answer. He blessed us. Now we're going to bless him. We're going to worship him. We're going to praise him. And similarly, in in Romans 9, where Paul dives deep into these issues of God choosing some people and not choosing others, um, one of the, it's really striking where he ends up with that. He he really ends up by reminding us that that God is God and we're not. And so it's very practical. It's designed to humble us and to cause us to worship God as he is the great and glorious God. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Um, And as a consequence, it really drives home the fact that I'm just a creature. I'm just the clay. He's the potter. 
And so it helps us to put ourselves in a posture of submission to him and his will. Hmm. So it's very practical. It's all scripture is designed to be applied. <laughs> Did you have anything to interact with? I'm I'm, I'm with him. Yeah, I know. I know. We're we're there 100%. mm -hmm. All right. So we've talked a lot about opinions and the differing sides, but we haven't actually talked about what they are. Mm -hmm. So let's um, map out a bit of the spectrum on this conversation. So, um, Paul, can you give us maybe two to four of the main camps and and kind of sketch out for the listeners what we're talking about when we're talking about all these different opinions. Okay, I can try. Yeah, um, you're fine. Because <laughs> it, it is a very complicated it issue. Is. And as you read different people, you discover that there are actually many different positions mm-hmm. that are held on this. That's true. Um, I think it's helpful for us to realize that even though we often frame it in terms of quote-unquote Calvinism versus Arminianism, the debate is much, much older than that. Mm -hmm. Um, It really broke loose, very roughly speaking, around the year 400 um, when the uh, Pelagian debate broke out in the church. And so Pelagius believed that um, he would say, yeah, we're saved by grace, But the grace of God is just the fact that um, Jesus came and died so we can be forgiven of our sins. God's given us free will so that we can choose him. Um, And he's given us the word so we know what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, against that point of view that Pelagius was presenting, Augustine said, no, no, no. Um, Sin has radically corrupted us such that we are so, so deeply sinful and opposed to God, that even though, yes, Jesus died so that we can be forgiven our sins and God gave us his word, and Augustine did believe that we do have a free choice of our will. Mm-hmm. He said the will is always free, but it is not always good. Mm-hmm. In other words, we've become evil, and because of the evil of fallen human nature and state of sin— Um, It's impossible for us to choose God unless God does a saving work in our heart first. And then connected with that is the idea that God chose whom he was going to give that saving grace to. So So there's Pelagius and then there's Augustine. But then there were other people who, they didn't like what Pelagius said. They realized he was denying um, that we really need a work of grace in our hearts. But they weren't ready to go as far as Augustine did. That troubled them. Um, And so they tried to find some kind of middle ground, people like uh, John Cassian. And they presented this idea that, well, God gives us enough grace so that we can at least choose to cooperate with that grace. And if we choose to cooperate with that grace, then God will give us more grace, and that will lead ultimately to our eternal salvation. Um, And that goes along with the idea that when God predestined people, um, he didn't so much choose whom he was going to save as he recognized who was going to choose him. In other words, he he looked ahead in time and said, oh, you know, um, 
Bob is going to choose me, and therefore I will choose him, and I will save him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of a middle position. Sometimes it's called semi-Pelagianism. I suppose in some ways you could call it semi-Augustinianism. Um, but that's that that idea that then that debate went on through the Middle Ages and uh, then broke out afresh with the Reformers, because most of the Reformers, um, Luther, Calvin, people like that, uh, Zwingli before Calvin, had a very strong view of God's sovereignty and his predestination. Um, And so the debate between the Reformers and the Roman Catholics also oftentimes revolved around that issue, although some Roman Catholics still believed the Augustinian view. Mm -hmm. And then that, so the Reformation was the 16th century, then at the beginning of the 17th century, it broke out again um, in the Netherlands with a debate between Arminius, Mm -hmm. um, who in some ways was just going back to the old kind of halfway position, and the, uh, the Reformed churches. I, I realize we just covered 2,000 years of you church know, history. You did a great job. <laughs> there you go. So, so, Dr. Yoder, in light of what um, Dr. Smalley is talking about, so where would you, in your opinion, so we've got Pelagius kind of on one end of the spectrum where we would say this is outside of Christian orthodoxy and, right. and kind of has been historically recognized as that. And then we have Augustine on... let's, you know, at least at the beginning with those two conversations on the other side. And then Mm -hmm. as Dr. Smalley was talking about Cassian and the semi-Pelagian, semi-Augustinians who are kind of the middle ground. So where do you see, and everybody is just so familiar with, or so many people are so familiar with the terms Calvinism and Arminianism, where do you see Calvinism and Arminianism kind of in that spectrum, just to help people understand. I know Dr. Smalley introduced Arminianism sort of as the semi-Pelagian, but yeah. what are your thoughts? So, um, right, you're, you're right to say that the, Pelag- the Pelagius position is, is, um, is extreme because Pelagius didn't uh, <clears throat> thought that we could live, as a result of our free will, live without sin and, and, that, and that we could, in a sense, save ourselves, that we can, that we can, that we can live without without sin. And that's that's clearly unchristian mm-hmm. and, and Augustine was right to oppose him in that regard. Um, the the uh, the uh, <clears throat> the so-called semi-Pelagian position uh, I think in some ways is distinctive in that it suggests that that um, some human individuals are the ones that initiate the process by which humans and God are reconciled. And I would have a problem with that. Um, I think that 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 God is is as has been mentioned, is the one that elects uh, even before the beginning of time and initiates the process. You know, in Jesus' words, he he, he draws all men to himself. So, um, I think that one of the the challenges that has has come up with regards to the Calvinist and Arminian position has to do with the place of God's election and the uh, and the role of of human choices in these things because it it feels as though they are mutually exclusive either god elects and predestines me or 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 i uh, choose to express my faith in christ and as as dr smalley said earlier we 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 need in some ways to think to to take things that seem kind of on their face to be um, mutually exclusive and see them together 
and um, and this is and, and and how we begin to sort that together as I think is at the crux of this of this um, situation and um, um, and of course the the terms too go well beyond the individuals we don't we don't of need course, to just talk yes. about Calvin and Arminius <laughs> there, there's a whole there are long traditions with many important thinkers and and everybody seems to to you know have their own slightly different shady mm-hmm. on how these things work and so it it's uh, it's hard to it's hard to um, to generalize without stepping on the toes of, of some somebody in, in this camp or that camp, um, but uh, but I think that that one of the one of the distinctives is is how should we understand the role of of our human uh, our free will our, our ability to make decisions with in the context of what is clearly taught in Scripture, which is that God elects and God predestines. Ephesians one, Romans mm-hmm. nine, um, many other places. So I'm going to push it a little bit. Please. For be because for the sake of people who might appreciate a smidge of generalization, um <laughs> I know we we like scholarly nuances right. and no it's okay. Um but I I do want to like help people understand if they have heard, oh well you're a Calvinist or I'm a Calvinist. What what would they, so let's say we have this picture in our mind, Pelagius, Cassian, Augustine, I don't know why Augustine wasn't in my head, but where would, where would somebody who said, like, I'm a Calvinist, where would they say, okay, so I've heard this explained, I would categorize them in this general area, you know, not specifically, but in this general area. Well, um, Augustine is actually a very interesting case because, um, first of all, I mean, Augustine is one of the great teachers of the church, one of, in my opinion, one of the, the smartest people that ever lived and, and, and just a, a tremendous scholar and thinker. And um, after he was saved, <clears throat> um, he was very much influenced by uh, Platonic and Neoplatonic thought and, and philosophy. Philosophy was really part of the... Um, the instrument that that led him to to uh, uh, to becoming a Christian, and he wrote as a Christian philosopher, and 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 so he wrote, for instance, a book like on the free choice of the will and other things, in which he argues for what we what we call today a libertarian position. Um, but as Augustine um, became, you know, was 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 named a bishop of the church, and he had the responsibility to to preach sermons and to uh, you know he continued to write and engage in debates with Pelagius and the Donatists and others, and the Manichees. <clears throat> he became more and more uh, kind of a, a proto-Calvinist, and uh, and really uh, and and really uh, moved in his position away from a kind of libertarian position towards more maybe what we would think of as a as a kind of compatibilist position on 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 freedom and sovereignty and um, and in some ways lays the foundation for uh, the, the the position of the reformers you know over a century over a millennia later okay and so the arminian perspective would then be a smidge toward Cassian? Well, I, I, I know, don't, I'm not I know sure that I want to talk I about know, it. Because I know. <laughs> I think one of the, to me... But I'm trying to help the, people who are no, listening get some kind of map in their head. <laughs> yes. So I, I think that, but um, I think we would be we better to, to leave Pelagius who, and, and, and even Cassius, and they, they I yeah. mean, uh, aside because they, they don't reflect um, 
in many, in, I think in helpful ways, the, the more Armenian or Wesleyan positions, they don't, they, uh, because, um, because, because there's some basic, there's some kind of basic mistakes that they make here. And, and I think we'd be better to, at least in my judgment, not to, not to think of Arminius and Pelagian in the same, in the same categories. They're, they're, they're quite different. And Pelagius, um, and Arvin, let's just put it this way, Arminius avoids, I think, the mistakes that Pelagius makes. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we want to, I think we need to keep them distinct. Okay. Well, absolutely. I'm, yes. I, I please don't, I, I wasn't saying it okay. was in the same, I was saying <clears throat> kind of a step between like, oh. a, like a step beyond what perhaps Augustine, a later Augustine and the reformers yes, would be, certainly. the Arminians would be a step away from that, um, toward the idea of a free will, but again, There's not as far as even Cassian, who is a questionable character as far as how much you would want to reflect him in your theology. I think that's right. Yes. I think that's right. Okay. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So I got to move us along, gentlemen. So we're talking about this and clearly everybody is using very careful language and is very concerned with (laughs) the nuances, Uh, rightfully so. Again, it is a complex topic. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about what is it? What you know, we've thrown out some passages, but what are some of the key concepts that it, we've already talked about some of the key passages with the interpretation where it says, no, this is kind of the hill that I, that not I, but uh, that this particular group feels like they need to defend. Um, I think perhaps that would be helpful is to say, okay, this, you know, the, um, those who are emphasizing more God's sovereignty and who might find themselves more later Calvin, uh, later um, Augustinian and Reformed tradition, this is the general hill that they're defending. Here's mm-hmm. the general hill Arminius and the Wesleyan tradition and all of that is defending. So, uh, Dr. Smalley, why don't you take the hill that later Augustinians and Calvinism is defending? Okay, well, first of all, you don't have to call me Dr. Smalley. Well, Um, okay, so I'm doing it because I realized, so Dr. Yoder is currently my second reader on my dissertation, and I don't feel right calling him Tim. I just can't. I can't. It feels wrong. I understand that. And so then I wanted you to feel respected, and so I started calling you Dr. Smalley. I appreciate that, but you don't need to confer a degree on me. Well, uh, thank you. Um, so, I tell the students here they don't have to call me Doctor Smalley unless they see me wearing a stethoscope. Well, so. fair enough. So, Paul, what what is the what is the hill that uh, the reformers are defending? Hill, do you mean the 
the passages of Scripture, or are you talking about the concept, the doctrine that they're trying to do? Probably both. Kind of what okay. is the general, so how they read Scripture, the, the passages that they see, how they're reading those passages, and, okay. you know, the theological concepts that okay. arise because of that. So, um, so what we would call Arminians today would uh, tend to focus on passages that emphasize the, the love of God. Um, they would quote John 3, 16. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, or they would quote Second uh, Peter 3, 9, that um, uh, God uh, does not will that any should perish. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would, they would hold those verses and they would talk much about the universal love of God, um, <clears throat> the goodness of God. They would also talk about the passages that emphasize the necessity of people believing in order to be saved, which, again, you go back to John 3.16 for something like that. Um, So the the way that they would view God's grace, talking about the Arminians, Mm -hmm. is they would view God's grace as um, starting with a, a general will of God that Everybody should be saved. And going along with that would be an outflowing from God of a universal grace to all mankind, um, what they would call prevenient grace, which just means grace that goes before us, um, so that everybody has the ability to choose God according to that grace, which is one difference between what Arminians believe and what Pelagius believe. Mm-hmm, that's Pelagius the correction said, to the mistake. They don't need yes. that grace. Arminius said, no, they do need that grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that, they would go to passages like um, John 1, 9, that talks about uh, Christ is the light which illuminates every man, that kind of a passage. And so, and then they would, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, obviously there are a lot of different texts that that get used in this, but I think that mm-hmm. fairly well outlines um when we're talking about God's grace. Okay, the, uh, Paul, um, just one second. I saw yeah. that you opened up your Bible. Did you have further thoughts on, because it, it seems like we're talking about the hill of the Arminian. Sure. So let's go ahead and talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm with uh, I'm with him on, on the ones that he cited. Thank you, Paul, for those. But I would also, uh, another one that's important would be a, pl- a passage like Deuteronomy 30, in which uh, Moses is is kind of giving his farewell address, and he tells the the, the children of Israel um, in Deuteronomy thirty fifteen. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commands, then you will live and multiply. And of course, if they fail to do that, they will they will receive judgment. And so the um, what is set before them is the is the choice the the uh, the the uh, the ability uh, to make to make these choices to to act in the right way or to uh, act in the wrong way and so it seems that there's some some measure of human responsibility before a sovereign God um, in in terms of these things so the the uh, the significance of of human freedom um, together with uh, the the uh, the sovereign plan of God is a significant part of that. Of, the of that perspective, right. yes. Okay. Um, okay, so human freedom mm-hmm. and emphasizing God's love are mm-hmm. the... We've thrown out a bunch of passages 
affirming those theological concepts. But those are kind of the big things that the Arminian camp would be defending and would say, hey, we've got to be careful. We don't lose this. Uh, no matter what we do, we can't lose this. And again, both camps are going to agree with the words used by everybody. <laughs> it's the definitions that that, that, that kind of right. create a little bit of sandpaper. Okay, so for the for the Calvinist side, what passages, what theological concepts arising from those passages are being used? Mm -hmm. Dr. Small, Paul, back to you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the the Reformed or what are commonly called mm -hmm. Calvinists yes. would say, okay, yeah, yeah. Moses says in um, in Deuteronomy, choose life. So people do have a choice to make, mm -hmm. and that's part of our nature. In fact, the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession, um, which is very similar, both affirm um, that human beings are created with a free choice of the will. Um, but they would also go to passages like uh, John 6, 37 and verse 44, where the Lord Jesus says that um, everyone whom the Father gives to me will come to me. Or, or again, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Yeah. And Jesus, our Lord, also connects that with people actually being saved. And so um, the Calvinist would say, look, um, everyone whom the Father gives to me, so that's sovereign grace. That's the reason why people are saved, but they will come. And in the context of John 6, to come to Christ is not a physical emotion, it's a motion of the heart, it's faith. And so they say, yeah, it's both. People do have a choice to make. Um, they have to trust in Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that text and others indicates that that's only going to happen if the Father does a supernatural work in their hearts. Um, other passages would be, uh, like I mentioned before, passages that clearly talk about God choosing people, electing people. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 9, Paul actually talks about how um, election is illustrated in the fact that um, God announced um, for two boys, while they were still in the womb, um, what their future was going to be. Mm -hmm. And he says that shows that this is not based upon their good works. This is based upon God's election. Yeah. Um, so they would go to passages like that. There are other passages. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about how God has chosen people for salvation. Um, through faith and uh, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. It's really a doctrine that shows up in quite a lot of places in the Bible. Mm. So um, so would you, would you say it would be fair, arising from those passages and others, that that camp is emphasizing God's sovereignty? Is that, and, and the that particular reading of what it means to be chosen in predestination. Is that, how would you characterize some of the key concepts that yeah, the Reformed tradition is defending? So the, 
the Calvinist would say um, the Bible clearly refers to God's general love for all mankind, um, at least most Calvinists, where there are few who would take an actually separate position and, mm -hmm. and deny that. Um, but the mainstream of Reformed theology through the years affirms God has a general love for all that he's created. But they would also emphasize that there is a special love that God has, that he has chosen to place upon his um, certain people. And that that's the love that, you know, Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for them or for her. Um, so they would emphasize, yes, the sovereignty of God. Um, but again, it's, it's not just, it's not sovereignty versus love. Of course not. No, no, no. We're, yeah, yeah. we're, and I'm, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying very hard, but to use specifically the term, I mean, I got on y'all about being specific and here I am doing the same thing, but I'm trying to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to be, um, particular in using the word emphasize so that we're, we're not talking about an either or on either side, because right. again, uh, just to reiterate either side and everybody within the spectrum is affirming all of these things about God and is affirming all of these things, most, most of these things, even about humankind. It's just the emphasis, it seems to right. me. Um, and, and which way it kind of takes you. So I do want to dig in. You guys have both kind of touched on those different definitions a little bit, um, where Paul, you were just talking about, okay, so a reformed perspective on love, for example, would be, yes, there's a general and then there's a special. So what would, so how is that different from how an Arminian would use the term God's love, and we're defending God's love. Either of you, chime in. Well. Yeah, please. Um, again, the, the Arminian would probably, I want to be careful here because I'm not an Arminian, so um, I want to be fair to what, what they would say. Um, they would probably emphasize the fact that no, God loves everybody the same. Um, and everything that God does to save people, he does for everybody. And so they would, they would really strongly emphasize that the equality, the um, uniformity, the universality of God's love for everybody. In fact, I think that's part of the objection that Arminians mm -hmm. raise against Reformed theology. It seems unfair to them that God would love one person in a way that he doesn't love somebody else. Um, and so that, that just doesn't seem good to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that that's, I think, I, I think that's right. Um, so one of the helpful ways, if I could reframe the question or answer it in a little different way, um, I think of understanding the differences between a, the kind of Reformed and Calvinist camp and a more Ar Armenian camp is from a from a Calvinist perspective, um, the process of the process of salvation is again to use another uh, academic word is monergist, which means one one energy, one one work, one and and God God the Father, God the God the actually the Triune God is working together to do all of these things on behalf of human beings. So there's election and then predestination and then then the works of of uh, of atonement. 
and justification. And even the things that typically seem to be um, human actions, like like faith and repentance. These are actually gifts that are given. And, and so, so the process is if you are chosen, especially loved, that if you are chosen to be part of the elect, then God has done all the things for you, and the individual is is brought along in the receiving of all of these of all of these things. And that, but 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 not not all are chosen, and so it, it seems that that well, why aren't they chosen? And and in fact, it's a it's a mystery. Uh, they're they're not chosen because of anything that they do. It's an unconditional election. That it's 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 there's there's. It's mystery in terms of why God chooses those that He does. That's the that's the uh, the, the monergist position. In, a, in an Arminian perspective, that the term synergism is used, and that means to, that two are working. There are two, there's there's a there's a, a kind of a duality, which um, which suggests that at some point in time there are there is a response that is uh, that is part of the process on the part of of the human individual. So there is a choosing. Some, you know, Arminians will understand the nature of election and predestination different. We, I don't think we need to get into all those details about how that's chosen or the, how that's understood. But, but um, part of, and, and uh, Paul mentioned, prevenient grace, there is a, a kind of common grace prior to salvation that is given, which, which uh, uh, enlivens uh, human beings' ability to choose. And so that when um, a person is drawn by the Father, they can respond appropriately in belief. Now, I, I would understand this to not, to not be a work or a merit. Those are, those are traps. I don't think that, that the, the faith is, is a work. Uh, Ephes- Paul teaches us that it's not in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not a merit, as, and, and using the Catholic term there. But, it's, but it is, in some ways, uh, a kind of an accepting. I, I think of it as the, the, most, the most passive kind of action, right, to, to receive this gift. But it has to be received. Um, and, and in fact, that's the critical moment, because those that don't receive it are the ones that will be damned, and those that do are the ones that are saved. Um, and so, and so these, there's, there, is a, there is an obligation, a responsibility on the part of humans to embrace, accept this, this gift. And so therefore, there's a sense in which there is the, um, a human part um, of embracing the work that God has done, which, which culminates in, in salvation. And to me, that's, the, that's the, the biggest difference, or one of the biggest differences between the two positions. Um, from a Reformed or Calvinist side, um, it's, it's the work of God entirely to bring this about. Um, uh, where the Armenians would believe in many aspects of that, of that story, the total depravity and 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 the work of 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 the Godhead to achieve our atonement and and to declare us righteous on the on behalf on because of Christ's sin. But at the at the key moment, the uh, the humans must embrace this um, in order to be saved. Okay, so I feel like you just did a very good job of answering my next question, which was um, kind of talking through the distinctions in the understanding of sovereignty. So we kind of talked about the distinctions and the understanding of love, which we kind of said is the main-ish hill emphasized by the Arminian side. And then the main-ish hill (laughs) emphasized by the Reformed would be sovereignty. And so that was a little bit of an understanding of how an Arminian 
perspective would understand sovereignty, the, the term and the concept in scripture. So, Paul, can you, um, we've only got just a couple minutes, so but can you very briefly help us understand how that is distinct from how the Reformed perspective would see sovereignty? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, so, yeah, drawing from uh, what Dr. Yoder just said about monergism and synergism, um, for the Reformed, the initial work of God to save the soul is monergistic. It is entirely the work of God. Um, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, um, even though you were dead, you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. And so that first step is monergistic. God alone does it. We're just dead. We're enemies of God. We hate God. Um, God does a, a miraculous work. He raises us from the dead by applying the resurrection of Jesus to us. But from that point onward, um, there is a synergism that takes place, according to the Reformed view. Um, because now you're alive, and if you're alive, you do things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's when you move into the state that's described in like Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he says, for it is God who works in you, both the willing and the doing. Can I pause and, you right there? Because I yes. just want to, for anybody who is listening um, carefully, so earlier you had talked about uh, the Arminian perspective on provenient grace, which right. was a grace that went before anybody responded or anything, God's grace that went before. So how is that different than the monergistic grace that you're talking about right now? That's an excellent question, Kimberly. The difference really boils down to the word effectual, um, which means having power in itself to produce the effect that's desired. Um, in Arminian prevenient grace, or, you know, John Cassian believed in the same concept too. Um, there's this universal grace that goes out. It gives people the possibility of choosing, but it doesn't actually make anyone to be saved. In the Reformed view, when God gives that grace, it's not a universal gift. It's only given to some. It's particular, but it is effectual. Um, God doesn't just kind of make us, to use the metaphor that Paul's using, half alive, so that then if we cooperate, we can become completely alive. God takes us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that grace, like it says in... Uh, Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. We're justified by faith. Armin Arminians and Reformed people would agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, but what that means is God has a kind of calling that he puts on people's lives that always produces faith. Mm -hmm. So it's effectual grace. Whereas in the Arminian view, grace is not effectual until we add our consent to it. In the Reformed view, grace effectually produces our consent so that we become willing. 
And that's it. That's a, it's a nuance, you know, to anybody who, I mean, for, for people who spend their life studying this, we're like, Oh no, that's a big deal. You know, (laughs) but, but for people who might not, this might not be quite their jam, but they've been hanging with us for about 54 minutes. They, that, that could be a nuance where it's like, no, there, there is a very, it, there is a distinction there and there's a point being made. And we've talked about why that matters in like our daily life, but that's, that is one of the key places that it kind of comes down to. All right. I see your Bible open, Mm -hmm. Dr. Yoder. And then we've got to go to one last question. No, I just wanted to, to, uh, to, um, um, to respond or to, to follow up with what Paul was saying. I, I, I think that his, his analysis was, was fair. Um, when we, when we, um, from an Armenian perspective, it is the, it is the faith that completes that completes the process. That that it's maybe to use a philosophical term. It's it's a necessary condition, right? Without faith, nobody can can be saved. That's Ephesians two. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Um, in Philippians it says, uh, "No, without faith, no one can please God." And so so the faith, which is which is to trust God, to love God, um, as Jesus says in the greatest command, commandment, that is. That is the that is the component which 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 links this together. Um, it's it is a gift from God. So that's that's a bit of a paradox, right? It's a gift from God, and yet it's something that that we must uh, exhibit, that we must display um, to uh, uh, to um, to unlock, as it were, maybe the uh, the, the, gr- the the tremendous grace that comes from God. Hmm. All right, so we're just we're going to take a little bit of a left hand turn right, right here at the end. So at the beginning, we talked about how this can be a charged conversation. And we've talked about the nuances of where it really comes down to and why that matters. But what would you gentlemen say to someone who is really upset, even listening to this, who's really upset by the idea that their parent who has not come to faith Mm is has not been chosen by god um let's start there and then we'll do the love one too but what would you say to them i think i would would say um that um that god has given us uh you know god is god god has created the world created us God has made this tremendous provision for us. God has um, enacted this this uh, tremendous plan of of salvation to save us, which involves the incarnation and and all and the crucifixion and the resurrection and so many wonderful wonderful riches here. Um, God's ways are higher than our ways, and there are, there are some things that we are not going to be able to know. Um, in my classes, I like to talk about. The, the desire that we have as in, as human individuals as theologians and even as philosophers to 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 understand the great and eternal truths but we we bump our head against the ceiling of, of our limits there are things that we can't figure out God has revealed to us a lot but there are some things that we can't know and we we at the end of the day what it really means to follow God is to trust him and um, and if we have these hard questions which I think we should present and ask, and bring before uh, the scripture, even bring before God, as, as Job did. Bring these difficult questions to God, um, but um, but trust 
Trust means that we are going to um, uh, join on God's side, that we are going to place our faith in the, in in the the, uh, the what what the, the scriptures assert to be a good and loving God. And even if all of our questions can't be answered, we have to trust in that. Paul, I'm going to f- do the question a little bit different for you. What would you say to someone who is really upset that others are not taking God's sovereignty more seriously? Because that seems to be the side, you know, that they're not taking God and who he is and who he has revealed himself to be in that manner seriously enough that they're minimizing it. Right. Well, um, I think for one thing, I'd probably ask them, why are they, why are they upset? Why does that upset them? And try and draw that out a little mm-hmm. bit, because there might be specific reasons why. Um, I know we're just operating in generalities right now, but I think it, it helps people who believe in the sovereignty of God in a very high sense to be reminded of how patient God has been with them. Um, and I think about uh, what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, where he says the servant of God um, needs to be patient with people, um, um, waiting for them. He's talking in the context of unbelievers, but, you know, teach them the truth and patiently wait for God to give them repentance and to set them free from the snare that the devil's in. It's really quite a contradiction for a quote-unquote Calvinist to be impatient. <laughs> um, we, we should know the sinfulness of our own hearts. We should recognize, even after our conversion, how many times we've been wrong. It's amazing to me how many times I've been wrong in my interpretation of the Bible. Um, and how much I've had to learn over the years, how patient God has been with me. Hmm. So if you believe that God is sovereign and you believe that people are sinful and corrupt and, and don't deserve anything except for hell and anything that God gives them is mercy and grace, then you should be patient with them the way God has been patient with you. You should just keep telling them the truth and pray and, um, and love people because that's hmm. what God does. Well, we are so far beyond our time. It's not even funny. But I decided that it was cool for us to plug ahead because the church has been trying to talk about it for Mm. thousands and thousands of years, and we needed a little extra time, too. So that's just fine. But gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for your time, for your thought, for your study in this area. We really appreciate the time you have taken just today to be with us. Dr. Smalley Paul is both. (laughs) Thank you for your time. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Kimberly. And thank you, Dr. Yoder. This has been a a very edifying conversation, I feel like. Yes, and thank you, Dr. Yoder, for being here as well. And we want to thank those of you who are listening um, for your time. And we would encourage you that the next time you want to chew on something theologically, and discuss issues of God and culture to come on back. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. 
Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.